crush your enemies. They drew first blood, not me. See them driven before you? Oh, my user. And they hear the lamentation of the women. But I pity the fool. Glitter in the dark near the ten hours of gate. Phone home. They're here. Oh, real light sleeper, child. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Zoot Suit, released January 1st, 1982. It was written and directed by Luis Valdez and released by Universal Pictures. On August 2nd, 1942, a man named Jose Diaz was discovered at a Los Angeles reservoir dubbed Sleepy Lagoon after a popular song of the time, with two stab wounds and a broken finger. A sleepy lagoon, a tropical moon, and two on an island. The official story is that he was confronted by members of the 38th Street Gang, crashing a party to avenge a friend's attack earlier that night. Diaz was rushed to a hospital but ultimately passed away, and the police were quick to apprehend 17 random members of the gang, 12 of whom were eventually found guilty of second-degree murder, convictions which were overturned by protests. Spoiler alert. Overflowing racial tensions from the trial resulted in the 1943 Zoot Suit Riots, and worse, the only popular song of the Cherry Pop and Daddies. The Zoot Suit Riot started with crowds of American servicemen reportedly infuriated by the superfluous use of fabric in a Zoot Suit style. The fabric was being rationed by the government at the time, and Zoot Suits were viewed by many so-called patriots as indulgent and offensive. But really, just no, a thinly, just thinly yeah. veiled yeah. Yeah, racist, uh, you know, racism against Mexicans. Yep. It's like they're buying them at the yeah. price that people are charging for the fabric. Yeah. So... Zoot styles were even banned by many manufacturers, causing a sudden high price for pre-war outfits. The riots lasted five days, resulting in 150 injuries and around 500 arrests. In 1978, writer-director Luis Valdez opened a retelling of the incident in the form of the critically acclaimed Zoot Suit stage play, and later a five-week run on Broadway. For the Broadway shows, the role of El Pachuco was recast with Edward James Olmos, on the path to a Tony nomination in 1979, and he reprises the role in the film. When Hollywood came calling, Valdez fought hard for the director's chair, eventually causing Paramount to drop the adaptation from their slate. Universal was quick to pick it up, because even in the early 80s, I feel like Universal was better about niche marketing and the importance of representation on screen. I think that's something they still do really well today. This was even intended as the first of a trilogy of films targeting a Hispanic audience, but this first film did not have the crossover appeal that they anticipated, despite critical appreciation. Jane Fonda and Anthony Quinn were interested in the project, but not cast. What would they be cast as? I, I would well, guess Fonda would be Alice, Bro- yeah. Alice Bloomfield. Oh, okay. And Anthony Quinn would be the father, but they'd have to bulk that role up a lot to mm. warrant paying Anthony Quinn for it. Unless he was going to be the lawyer. Maybe. That would probably I, make I think it's supposed to be a white sense. guy, though, because mm-hmm. Pachuco is, like, shitting all over them for trusting white people. Zoot Suit was nominated for Best Musical or Comedy at the Golden Globes. The critical success also drew several lawsuits, including from the defendants in the actual Sleepy Lagoon case. But the happy news there is that writer-director Valdez was able to award the defendants a settlement in the form of 1% of the film's net profit divided among them. 
Unclear if that meant zero dollars thanks to movie marketing magic, though. So they were upset about this? They considered it an invasion of privacy was the charge because they didn't have everyone's permission to make a story about the Sleepy Lagoon case. But it's it's public knowledge. Like, it's a it's a public court case. I don't think that they need I don't know the permission. rules. I don't, I don't, it, just, it just seems weird to me. It also seems weird to me because, I mean, maybe they don't want it known, but I, I would feel like... They it paints you wa- in a sympathetic light. You would for sure. want yeah. this injustice to be better known than it mm-hmm. is, and yeah. maybe it was it was more well known, but I had never heard of it before. Well, it was always Valdez's intent to share the profitability of the film with the people that it was telling the story of. Yeah, and so this w- this worked out two birds one stone solving sure. the problem. Did, but did, I don't did, know if they actually got anything out of it. Did they also seek damages during the play run? No, not until the film had come out. Another claim was filed by Bertha Aguilar who claimed that the Bertha in the story was based on her, but that case was dismissed by the court for lack of evidence. An opening disclaimer tells us this is based on a true story, and we cut to that classic reflective ball retro universal logo. Do you guys recall the last time we saw this retro logo? I feel like it was fairly recently. It mm. was recently. It was for the Christmas special. So. It was. Um, Which one of those is a period piece from the early... Is it the Sting? It is the Sting. That's correct. We see an illustrated approximation of the Hollywood Land sign over black, and then signs for the Earl Carroll Theater as it appeared decades ago. We dissolve to the same building now, painted with the mural of the film's ephemeral El Pachuco character and the words Zoot Suit installed over the marquee. People rush from taxis into the lobby as if nearly missing the show. A fancy car from the 38th Street Car Club rolls into the lot with the license plate Zooter. The driver escorts his date inside, and the valet skids off in their fancy vehicle. The camera pushes into the mural, and then we dissolve to Edward James Olmos on stage in a zoot suit. This character is credited simply as El Pachuco, but they don't mention it in the dialogue, so in my notes I sometimes call him Olmos, or the fairy god padre. (laughs) As the titular song begins in instrumental, he struts the stage in a spotlight through a crowd of other characters frozen in place. He snaps his fingers and points into camera to bring them to life. He sings a song about how great you look in a zoot suit with his own trio of backup singers. Put on a zoot suit, makes you feel real root. Look like a diamond, buckle and shining. Ready for dancing, ready for the boogie tonight. In the middle of a dance number, two men repeatedly fight over a dance partner until their disagreement is broken up. A Navy man gets a little handsy with his Asian American dance partner, and she has to slap him away before they resume their dancing. The camera zooms into almost flipping open a switchblade, and the picture dissolves to the cover of the Daily Express, July 3rd, 1942, with articles about World War II, a radio address from FDR, and Leslie Howard lost at sea. Suddenly, the front page match cuts to a full-scale backdrop of the same front page. Almost slices through a photograph of a warplane, and on the edges of frame, we see headlines about a kid murdered in Sleepy Lagoon and a grand jury acting on a zoot suit war. The audience applauds this dramatic entrance. El Pachuco addresses the crowd directly to explain that the film about to unfold is a mixture of truth and fiction, but not to let that distract them. Our Pachuco realities will only make sense if you grasp their stylization. It was a secret fantasy of every vato, living in or out of the Pachucada, to put on the zoot suit and play the myth. Maschucote, que la chingada. Or, in English, more gangster than a motherfucker. He snaps his fingers again, and we see a man standing in a black void, confused. 
Olmos appears magically behind him, holding a newspaper announcing a recent murder, and the confused man denies involvement. Olmos tells us this is Henry Reyna, aka Hank. Olmos calls him a gang leader from 38th Street, and Henry is already envisioning a future in prison, but Olmos tells him that it won't come to that, and assures him he's just stoned. It seems like Henry's being held captive wherever this is, and as a result, he will likely miss his appointment tomorrow, reporting to the Navy. Olmos mocks Henry's military aspirations. We popped by the sailor man. <laughs> Olmos reminds him that despite international tensions, the local government has declared more of a war on Chicanos than their foreign aggressors. El Pachuco warns him that the jail time will render him unfit for military service. He tells Henry that his war is here, and we cut to police frisking a line of people with their hands up. A representative of the press announces this is Los Angeles, August 2nd, 1942. El Pachuco corrects him with the actual full name of Los Angeles City, which I think is in the Guinness Book of World Records for having the shortest abbreviation for the longest name of a city. LA is very short for El Pueblo de Nuestra Señora La Reina de Los Angeles se porciuncula pendejo, which literally translates to The Town of Our Lady, the Queen of Angels of the Little Portion, asshole. But that's not part <laughs> I was going to say, the, the <laughs> pendejo is not part yeah. of the name. <laughs> We cut to one of the cops, played by Red Foreman himself, Kurtwood Smith, who mentions the recent arrest of 300 men and women. The police have issued an open call to victims to show up and identify criminals from the group. Victims of assault, rape, robbery, purse snatching, and similar crimes are asked to be pleasant for the identification of suspects. This is like the most racist thing in the world. It's like, we arrested every Mexican. Mm -hmm. Come tell us which Mexican did a terrible thing to you. And then we'll just give you money and put them in jail. Just randomly. We cut to a dark room where three cops, including Kurtwood, who is referred to as Smitty here, are grilling Henry about the recent death in a gang fight at Sleepy Lagoon Saturday night. Henry plays dumb, and they tell him a boy named Jose Diaz was killed, and they intend to learn by who. Henry gives them a lot of attitude, and they give him a good beating, but he doesn't cough up any useful information before they knock him unconscious. We get an overhead shot of Henry passed out on the floor, and six couples dance around him. When he wakes up, his teeth are bloody. El Pachuco's here and coaxes him out of reality toward the unlocked door of his jail cell, which swings magically open. When he steps through it, he's suddenly on the back porch of his own home. Inside, his mother can be seen making tortillas. The way they handle the stage play part of this, like, they didn't rewrite it. Like, they, they left it. It feels exactly the way it was yeah. on the stage, which definitely involves the audience and and has interesting transitions because we're going from location to location where you know and when you transition locations on set you have to do kind of unique things yeah and they definitely represent that well here yeah um i really like the stylization of it like maintaining that play performance um but like i think i think it could have been interesting the other way around too like if you remove all of that and made it more realistic like it's happening in real life i think i would have liked for maybe a mix where you have these parts that seem especially stagey but then when we're going into a scene that we're going to be in for a minute that we get that in a more cinematic like standard filmmaking approach but i get the impression also that that was part of the deal when universal took over the project and said if you want to direct it yourself then we're going to spend significantly less on the movie. Sure. So that means you need to make it look more like the stage play. And you got to be creative film. with this money. Yeah. Right, exactly. It seems like we're outside of the stage performance now, and we see Henry and his brother Rudy as young boys dressing in their room before dinner. They look pretty fancy for dinner, and we learn that there's a dance after dinner. Henry's mother mocks his zoot suit. She warns him he'll be arrested without cause for dressing this way, and they laugh off her fears before she heads back downstairs. Rudy shows Henry a condom he's packed for tonight in case of any real trouble. 
Before leaving the room, Henry contemplates bringing a switchblade and then puts it away. But El Pachuco, his fairy god padre, gives him another switchblade and this time he takes it. Or maybe it's the same one, magically lifted yeah. out of the drawer. Downstairs, Rudy strolls into the kitchen in his zoot suit and pimp hat and their father is embarrassed. Hijo, don't go out like that, eh? Por favor. You look like an idiot, pendejo! Dad doesn't like his son wearing his old clothes because they're way too big. But Rudy says it looks like classic Chicano style, and Dad acts like Chicano is a slur. He wishes his sons had more Mexican pride. Henry calls upstairs to their sister Lupe, who is riding to the dance with them. They'll have to pick up Della on the way. Presumably Della is Henry's date, and Dad recognizes the name as the daughter of his personal friend. He wonders what happened to his old girlfriend Bertha, and we'll meet her later. Upstairs, we see their sister struggling with how to mask her revealing party dress. Rather than sneak past her parents, she opts for climbing out the window. In the kitchen, Henry offers his mom a bit of cash for this week's refin, meaning food, from refinar to eat, which I was always taught as comer, but I guess it's slang because when I translate refinar from Spanish, most sites just say to refine, but a few mention eating. Refinando. Mom tries to refuse his money, but he tells her he just got his last paycheck from the shoe repair. She admits that she's worried about him going off to war and half wishes it were jail instead. For this entire meal, El Pachuco is standing by the door, just silent, not interacting in the scene. Dad keeps hassling Rudy to find a job like his brother until eventually Rudy storms out of the house. Henry tries to follow Rudy out, but Dad makes him stop for a drink first. Dad mentions again how proud he is of Henry for joining the Navy and getting out of their neighborhood. You know that switchblade in your pocket? And I thought this was going to be him telling his son to put it away and, and not be yeah. stupid yeah. with it, but instead he's like, Rip apart that goddamn silly suit. Yeah, you sh obviously you should have a knife for this dance that you're going to. Mom takes out the trash and finds Sister Lupe hiding behind Rudy on the porch. She drags the girl inside, and when Dad sees her dress, he's just as upset as she predicted. Ah, Hiko, where's the rest of it? The kids all scramble out of the house when they hear their ride honking out front. We're left in the kitchen with the Reinas, and Olmos snaps his fingers, freezing the scene and kicking off a song about dancing. But instead of the dance, we see everyone loaded into a jail cell by Kurtwood. Again, the man from the press tries to set the scene, at least attempting the full name of Los Angeles, but he can't finish it and just mm -hmm. jumps to the date. The Nuestra Señora de Los Angeles de Pachuco. August 8, 1942. Bruised and beaten, Henry is escorted to the cell last. The prisoners assume they'll be charged with murder and start fighting amongst themselves. Their attorney, George Shearer, arrives, paid by their parents to talk them through the situation. When they won't offer him a seat, he lays his briefcase over the toilet to sit down and take their names. They ask how much money he's getting from their folks, and he mentions that he has a history of defending minorities from these types of charges and barely getting paid for it. I was paid exactly $3.50 plus a pack of Lucky Strike cigarettes and a note for $1,000, never redeemed. Does that answer your question? The boys hand him his briefcase back and send him packing. On his way out, he informs them that the DA is charging the entire 38th Street Gang with conspiracy. El Pachuco reappears in the cell and suggests that, properly defended or not, the case is stacked against them and it's not worth it to make a deal with this white man. Henry makes the deal anyway. Immediately, he gets their testimony on the events of the night in question and we jump back a week to the dance last Saturday, so they've been in this jail for a week already. The first song at the dance is about swing dancing. The band switches to a slow song, and a mildly intoxicated girl, probably Henry's ex Bertha, crosses the dance floor to ask for a dance right in front of Henry's new girl, Della. Thankfully, another guy scoots by to take Bertha to the dance floor as she picks on the new girl. 
He doesn't take her far enough, though, as she keeps talking shit. Uh, uh, this actress gives me, like, serious, like, Catherine Hahn yeah. vibes. Just, like, the, the, the kind of, like, drunken, yeah. like, like insulting kind of way. Yep. She doesn't know the difference between being cool and being cool. Spanish for ass. Take that, Della. El Pachuco switches musical genres on the jukebox again to kick off some Danzón music. The music changes again to a mild mariachi. Henry's date is still shaking from their encounter and asks for a cigarette to calm down, so they step outside. We see the Navy man and his date from the opening number moving amongst the partiers. Lupe notices her brother Rudy is getting drunk and warns him against going home like that because he's already on bad terms with their father. People joke with Henry that he has plans to take his date out to Sleepy Lagoon tonight and the song slips into a mambo number, possibly five. What was that guy's name? I can't remember his name. Lou Vega? No. Lou Vega, yeah. Yeah. Rudy has a few confrontations with a guy named Rafa who blows smoke in his face and tries to pick a fight until Henry intervenes, reminding the guy to lay off his family. Rafa talks shit on the Navy and Henry's gang, and so the two men agree to a one-on-one fight. Right away, we're pre-enacting Michael Jackson's Beat It video as two guys circle each other with switchblades in the middle of a ravenous crowd. Henry kicks Rafa off balance, and El Pachuco freezes time again to consult with him. Olmos advises him to steady his hand. He points out that Mexicans killing Mexicans doesn't help their overall cause, but Henry seems eager and reminds Olmos that he didn't want to bring the knife in the first place. When El Pachuco unfreezes time, Henry orders Rafa out of the club, and the crowd is disappointed not to see any bloodshed. He promises Rafa a rematch when World War II has come to a close. Henry's friends seem to approve as Rafa and his people file out, but Bertha wants to ruin the moment and says the old Henry would have sliced the guy up. He's losing his nerve. That's all I'm going to take from you, Bertha. It's over. Come on, baby. He grabs Della's hand and they leave together. The party goes back to swing dancing and Henry and his girl make tracks to Sleepy Lagoon. We cut back to the present, a week after the dance, and a woman named Alice Bloomfield, played by Tyne Daly, comes to speak with Henry in a cell. She tells Henry that the press are trying to make their dances out to be some kind of fascist movement. They claim it's synarchismo. Synarchy? Synarchismo. A fifth column fascist movement dancing to tunes played by Rome, Tokyo, and Berlin as relayed through Mexico City. Did you ever hear of it? It's such a crazy conspiracy that Henry doesn't even have a response. She explains right out that she knows the story makes no sense, that some old man in San Simeon is using it to sell papers, an obvious reference to William Randolph Hearst. She blames Hearst for the rampant reporting of Mexican crime waves in the area, another fabrication to stroke racial tensions. She tells Henry that he's been painted as the face of this movement. Again, El Pachuco advises Henry not to trust every white person claiming to be on his side, and again he ignores the advice. When their attorney arrives, he mentions that Mrs. Bloomfield is assisting with their case. That's how she came to know of their situation. Before he leaves, their attorney asks if he can do them any favors, and Henry asks for socks and underwear for the men who've been in the same clothes for over a week now. El Pachuco looks disappointed in Henry for thinking these people will help him in any way, but Henry insists that he's not a loser and things will work out because he will force them to. Then, we jump cut to the courtroom, and El Pachuco's thrown switchblade stabs into the desk of the defense. We learn as court proceedings begin that we are now two months on from the unsolved murder and Henry and his pals have been denied clean clothes and haircuts the entire time. The defense attorney suggests that these denials are a deliberate attempt to make the 38th Street Boys look like filthy gangsters and the judge says that the zoot suits are a part of their image and he condones this treatment, implying that witnesses to the crime 
couldn't possibly identify them in different clothes, but that dirty skin or hair won't be enough to mask them, deliberately misinterpreting the defense's point. A cop is called to the stand by prosecution, and El Pachuco reminds Henry to keep his boys looking sharp for appearance's sake. Henry criticizes their postures, but the men are tired. They've been sleeping on cots in a tiny jail for months. The first cop on scene testifies that he was called to the lagoon by reports of a disturbance after a birthday party. He claims the victim's mother told him that Pachucos attacked his birthday party around 1 o'clock in the morning, led by Henry Reyna and the 38th Street Gang. Defense tries to object, suggesting the word gang is harmful to the reputation of his clients, but the judge overrules the objection. Also, they refer to themselves as a gang multiple times. So, I mean, I get the point that he's making from a legal standpoint, but mm. yeah. that's what they call themselves. The next cop on the stand suggests that Mexicans, by their very nature, are violent people. This inborn characteristic comes down from the bloodthirsty Aztecs. Objection! Objection, Your Honor! Objection overruled! The largely Mexican audience groan in disgust at this blatant display of racism. Again, the judge is lapping up all this Chicanophobia, and Shearer's objections are overruled. The cop is allowed to continue with his manifesto, suggesting that liquor or marijuana mixed with Mexican blood is a recipe for guaranteed violence. We dissolve to a new musical number with El Pachuco at a piano covered in neon lights and backup singers as they perform the Marijuana Boogie. Mari, mari, wana, mari, mari, wana, boogie. El Pachuco speaks into his mirrored piano in which we can see Henry sitting in court. He continues roasting Henry for thinking the courtroom would be fair and just. He also seems to blame Henry's Aztec blood, but Henry reminds his fairy godpadre that he is innocent. But there's no more pyramids, but not only the gas chamber. But I didn't do it, is it? I didn't kill anybody! I got a woman named Juana. El Pachuco admits that Henry still has a chance if his girlfriend's testimony is taken seriously. We dissolve for the first time to the scene of the crime, Sleepy Lagoon. It seems Della and Henry are here alone, conflicting with the story perpetuated by the victim's mother. Della enjoys the view here by the water under the full moon. It's just a reservoir. At least at night you can't see the tires of tin cans. <laughs> they begin kissing. They step out of the car to look at the water when Henry hears faint music from a nearby party. So now the story kind of jives with what we've heard, that there was a party at a ranch near the lagoon and Henry arrived mm. late at night or early in the morning, potentially. And, and this is one of the, the... There are many scenes that are like very very much this is a play right like, yeah this is like it's like look over there there's a party <laughs> like <laughs> pointing oh out pointing, pointing out this. we <laughs> yeah. won't show it to you yeah, no yeah. no we'll don't actually talk. look just trust me <laughs> just there's talk. a party we'll over there talk about it camera on me please della suggests they crash the event but he reminds her he's keeping her out of trouble tonight she seems annoyed that he's keeping this promise to her father instead of showing her a good time and she admits that her father has never trusted any of her previous boyfriends alone with her maybe he knows what he's doing a lot of guys don't know how to respect a girl they kiss more and Henry's hand is sliding up her thigh under her skirt when El Pachuco reappears to ruin the moment. Go ahead and say, Papa Cherry, you know she wants it. Henry is disgusted by the voice of his inner demon and pulls away from her. She reminds him that he'll be overseas soon and they might not get another chance together. She mentions that Henry never hesitated with his ex Bertha and he's insulted. He invites her to the back seat if she wants to be as cheap as his ex. She's moved to tears by his crassness. I'm sorry, Dana. I was just trying to prove a point. I don't want to go to jail for statutory rape. The first indication we've gotten of an age gap between them. She asks why he's so preoccupied about committing crimes, but she will likely learn very soon why. <laughs> While they wait in the car together, a second vehicle pulls up. It's Rafa and his friends from the dance, and they brought baseball bats to smash up Henry's car. 
Henry urges Della away from the violence, and we see El Pachuco sitting nonchalantly inside the car as glass explodes through the cab around him. Rafa and company knock Henry unconscious, and Della waits with him until he wakes up. The first thing he said was, Let's go into town and get the guys. Henry and Della loop back to town and bring the entire 38th Street gang to the lagoon. When they get back, Rafa is gone, but the other party is still going. We learn from Della's testimony that Rafa had earlier that night been kicked out of the other party for starting fights. So when Henry and his friends tried to crash it, they were mistaken for Rafa's crew, the Downey Gang. Before they even get to the party, the other crowd instigate an all-out brawl. Eventually, Henry urges his friends away from the fight, but Della testifies to seeing one man beat another mercilessly with a large stick. In the darkness, we can just make out El Pachuco striking Jose Diaz over and over. Henry screams for the man to stop, but he doesn't. The prosecuting attorney presses Della for details on the man she saw attacking Diaz, but she doesn't know his name, only that Henry was with her. The prosecuting attorney starts waving an assortment of blunt objects, asking what she saw the murderer using, and she shoots every object down. He names other members of Henry's gang, and as the court has instructed, each defendant stands when they hear their name so the jury can tell them apart, but Della clears each member of any wrongdoing. Eventually, the attorney is just shouting Henry's name over and over. More for the jury than for the judge. Henry Rayner, Henry Rayner, Henry Rayner! Did Henry Rayner willfully murder no, Jose Sanchez? No. We see El Pachuco sitting at the mirrored piano again, laughing, and playing music over the image of Henry's friends standing and sitting over and over like some insane courtroom whack-a-mole. Mr. Shearer calls out the judge for overruling every legitimate objection and threatens to report him to a higher authority. The judge basically says, go for it. And also, I'll hold you in contempt for questioning me in the first place. As Della steps down from the stand, the judge suddenly remands her to the custody of a girl's school for a year as a ward of the state. That night, Shearer blames his own outburst for Della's sudden punishment. Henry is pissed at Shearer for pretending they could win this case, but Shearer explains, Oh, sorry, no, I didn't mean this trial. This case is going to be won on appeal. Appeal? What did I tell you, I said? You mean you know we're going to lose? Shearer confesses to essentially baiting the judge into misconduct for the purposes of a no-brainer appeal. We jump cut right to the jury's decision, and all five defendants are found guilty of murder in the first and second degree. The judge pretends he's doing them a favor by offering life in prison in place of the warranted capital punishment. I thought it might have been funny if Henry's mom started clapping here, and everyone looked at her like, no, that's bad. Because earlier in this story, she wished a prison sentence on him mm -hmm. instead of going to war. Did you end up watching that? Um, I did not. Yeah, so there's a PBS series called American Experiences, and they did an episode on this actual story, like the real-life story of it. And uh, a lot of this is pretty true and accurate yeah. to, to, to what happened. They, I mean, they're taking some shortcuts in some places just to, you know, for the for the film, I, I presume for the play as well. But I, I thought that was interesting, too, because they said when the verdict was read, most of the mothers and stuff in the audience, the family members, had no idea what was happening. They didn't actually understand. Right. So Because the, there wasn't anyone translating mm -hmm. for them. Yeah. So the kids are there trying to, to translate and, you know, everyone's just sobbing and, yeah. and, and not really getting the story. We cut to the boys incarcerated at San Quentin and receiving mail from Shearer. It's basically a newsletter to keep them informed of the appeals process. Henry wrinkles up the mail and tosses it in his cell toilet. We see Alice arrive to speak with them. She's brought gifts from their families, but she notices quickly that Henry didn't come to the meeting. They don't even want to tell her why he's not here, but she tries to drag an answer out of them. Henry shows up and asks to meet with her in private and says he wants to pull out of the appeal. 
She tells him the neighborhood has offered so many donations to fund this case already. He tells her that she's using Mexican defendants to play politics. Congratulations, Henry. That's the worst thing that anyone has ever said to me. On the verge of leaving, Alice turns around and recites to Henry a collection of the horrendous complaints she hears from people all day at the office for his defense. They call her heartless, a communist, an untrustworthy Jew. But then, weirdly, it seems like she herself is admitting to hating parts of Mexican culture, like their language, enchiladas, and mariachi music. The jail guard smiles for this part because he likes hearing people be racist. But seriously, who hates enchiladas? That's not even a thing. <laughs> enchiladas are the Mr. Rogers of the food world. She and Henry break into laughter because he can accept that at the very least she's being brutally honest with him here. She finally admits that she has nothing against enchiladas because no shit you don't. <laughs> it's huevos rancheros, I can't stand. <laughs> there is no bad Mexican food. It might be the most consistently delicious cuisine in the world. There's no bad Mexican food. I could bring darts to any Mexican place and just throw them at the menu to order and be ecstatic with whatever showed up. El Pachuco wanders up with attitude for Henry to temper his friendliness with the white lady. Changing the literal translation of huevos from egg to the slang for testicles of pachucos, which if I didn't mention before, pachuco means like teen gang members or like juvenile gang members. Henry commits again to the appeal and Alice is relieved. She asks him a small favor though. She would like him to write an article detailing his experience and she would get it published to turn public opinion on the case. El Pachuco tells him he's no writer, but she insists. He offers to start by writing her letters in private to work his way up to a full-blown article. He puts a bit of a romantic flavor on the word private, though. Sometime later, we see El Pachuco giving Henry a prison tattoo as a lead-in to another musical number called Handball about passing time in jail and how to logically navigate their legal situation. I feel like the metaphor is really weird here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, play handball, because it's just like, surviving what's happening to you and it's like it doesn't really have anything to do with anything but you probably played handball a lot while you were in this jail sometime later he meets again with alice and she says that she met with della and she's doing well henry asks why she hasn't responded to his letters and she confirms my suspicion nobody ever wrote me love letters before she tells him that she has to devote everything to the case now she can't confuse it with a relationship he seems disappointed but gives her one long kiss before leaving the room Back in his cell, El Pachuco heckles Henry for all the mistakes he's made to end up here and suggests San Quentin was built just for fools like him. He tries to punch his imaginary friend and breaks his hand on the cell wall. Henry is being moved from his cell one morning and picks a fight with a guard, landing a stay in solitary. Not a good place for a guy who's now throwing punches at his imaginary friend. Do you recall the last time somebody was sent to solitary for uh, attacking a guard? Raging Bull? No, oh, more recently than that. Not on the regular schedule. Uh, Papillon? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. We see him in the darkness of a solitary cell hallucinating an entire theater around him. He sees his family and friends sitting in the theater seats, and each time El Pachuco snaps his fingers, some of them disappear. El Pachuco assures him he will never see any of these people again, and Henry finally recognizes El Pachuco as his worst inner instinct and renounces him. Suddenly, El Pachuco is the ghost of Christmas present, painting a picture for Henry of life outside these walls for the Mexicans of Los Angeles. We see people swing dancing on a big stage, and every time a zoot suitor or Mexican-American takes the stage, they are forced off of it. The entire band for this scene are black and white cardboard cutouts of multiple El Pachucos. <laughs> like, there's a bunch of Edward James Olmoses playing different instruments on the bandstand. A riot breaks out between Navy men and zoot suitors fighting over the dance floor, and we see the same press man reporting the update over the radio. Apparently, the Navy actually sent 20 taxis full of swabbies to invade the barrios and apprehend zoot suitors. 
El Pachuco is somehow able to address a second character now and condemns the press guy for calling the Mexican-American victims of this operation Pachucos and Zoot Suiters as a dog whistle. All it is for you guys another way to say Mexican without insulting your allies south of the border. The press man insists that Zoot Suits look just as dumb on white kids and then claims that Mexicans were all naked savages when the white men dragged them from the jungle into civilization. Um, you mean when you took Mexico by force and just called it America around them? The press guy leans on the historical excuse that this racism has nothing to do with their ancestry and they're only mad about the excessive use of fabric to clothe these children. Th this whole thing is, is accurate to, right. to the actual riots. Mm -hmm. yeah. that they were just bussing in, uh, you know, Navy and other military That's crazy. personnel to just pick up or beat up anybody that they could find on the street. Yeah. This whole conversation plays out with the press man trying to sneak out of the theater where this entire story is being performed, but he finally speaks his true racist thoughts when he's joined in the lobby by a team of servicemen. Say it! Say it! Kill the Pachuco bastard! El Pachuco handily fights off all the men while looking like a complete badass, and then intentionally drops his switchblade to make a point for Henry. They drag him back to the stage and tear his zoot suit to shreds leaving him crumpled in what looks like a loincloth on the floor, sobbing. When Henry moves to comfort him, he has suddenly transformed into Henry's brother Rudy, now fully nude. You left me and they ganged up on me. Why? Why did you take me with you? He blames Henry for keeping him out of the murder case. He was there at the lagoon that night, but Henry managed to keep him out of the defendant's square. But on the outside, he's a constant target, stripped by violent servicemen to discourage supporting the zoot suit styles. Henry leans in again to comfort his crying brother and suddenly it's El Pachuco. He stands slowly and then backs away into the darkness. Henry seems shaken by the vision. We dissolve two visiting hours at the prison and Della is here to see him. She's been released from state custody and her parents gave her an ultimatum. To forget all about him or move out on her own. She didn't hesitate to commit to Henry. She assures him the appeal looks good and things are almost over. She understands that he might not want a life with her after this whole experience, but she wants him to be honest about it and not waste her time. I got nothing to give you, Dale. Just give me some hope. How? Oh. Ask me to wait. He's sorry for everything he's put her through already, but she claims she has so much more to offer. I would die for you. I love you. Suspecting the feelings are not reciprocated, she collects her things to go and he stops her. Wait. And this is where I started crying watching it. She tries to reach for him, but a guard interrupts. No touching. But it turns out he's a human too. What the hell? Go ahead. <laughs> Henry kisses her hand and we dissolve to an abstract meeting of five servicemen and the defendants approaching each other in a narrow hallway. We've jumped forward another year and a half to the end of 44 and the war is nearly over. Unmentioned in the film is the fact that in the ensuing two years, zoot suits were legally banned from being produced or worn, but there were a few people that were still making them illegally for this market because they had suddenly gotten super expensive. The national optimism for the future seems to have changed minds, and without a second of screen time devoted to the appeal process, we jump right to the case's conclusion. Headline! District Court of Appeals decides in Sleepy Lagoon murder case. Boys and San Quentin given... We see the defendants welcomed into the loving arms of their families, and Shearer and Alice Bloomfield celebrate with them. Henry notices El Pachuco, now dressed in a fully white zoot suit. Henry's happy to see him again. I thought I lost you. It take more than the U.S. Navy to wipe me out, is it? 
Henry forces El Pachuco to admit that things worked out, happily ever after. Pachuco almost lets him believe it, but then he snaps another three years forward for an epilogue from the press man. But life ain't that way, Hank. Henry Rennie went back to prison in 1947 for robbery and assault with a deadly weapon. While incarcerated, he killed another inmate and wasn't released until 1955 when he got into hard drugs. He died of the trauma of his life in 1972. But then, Pachuco takes the epilogue back, insisting there is yet another way to end this story. Instead of winding up back in prison, this third ending sees Reyna sent to the Korean War in 1950, which contradicts the previous ending, so this is literally a new timeline we're describing. In this version, Reyna dies in Incheon in 1952, which is a little confusing because the Battle of Incheon was in 50, but the Korean conflict didn't end until 53, so it's not impossible that he would have died there a couple years after the famous battle in some other way, I don't know. Being posthumously awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. I guess this is a happier ending, but now we jump to Alice Bloomfield with an even happier one. Henry Reyna married Della Barrios in 1948. They still live in Los Angeles. They have five kids, three of whom are now attending university, speaking Pachuco slang and calling themselves Chicanos. The camera backs up for another wide look at the stage for a final dance number, and we see a collection of the story's characters describing Reyna in their own words. Henry Reyna, the born leader. Henry Reyna, the zoot suitor. Henry Reyna, my friend. Henry Reyna, my brother. Henry Reyna, our son. Henry Reyna, my love. Henry Reyna, el pachuco, the man, the myth, still live. The audience breaks into a standing ovation and the cast bows. We're left on the image of El Pachuco standing before a rose in neon lights and the color fades to black and white before the credits roll. Sadly, the true story of Henry Levas, on whom Reyna was based, most closely resembles the first saddest ending because he was sent back to prison but for drug dealing and when he was released, he opened a family restaurant and then died of a heart attack in 71. That's uh, Zoot Suit. It's pretty great. I loved it. Yeah. I really loved it. And this cast is incredible. Everybody's doing such great work here. I, yeah, the acting is incredible. And I, I mean, I think it's, you could attribute that to him having, uh, Edward James almost having played this role uh, on, in, 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 on yeah. the stage already. So he had, I, I mean, in my opinion, perfected it because mm-hmm. his mannerisms in here, he's he's always, you know, leaning back, looking so stoic and cool. And then he really does look so cool in mm-hmm. every shot. Every time he snaps and it changes the scenes, it's so dramatic. Uh, it's cut really well. Uh, but I, I also love how you can tell the whole time that he's just a part of Henry and that he's like, This is his like anger simmering in the background and he just wanders in when he's like, you're getting too friendly with these people. I need to remind you who you are and how angry you are. I think he's also great. The songs, I enjoy the songs. They're really good. He's a great singer. Yeah, he's He's singing it. Really compelling. mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And I think it's just really well written too. Like the turn of phrase, I was laughing so frequently at at the, you know, the way that he was saying these things and the jokes and the, you know, the double entendres and all this other stuff that they just sort of pepper in there with all the slang and stuff. It's so great. And Uh, I also think they do a really good job of, introducing a few words over the course of the story so that you know what we're talking about. Yeah. Like like they, they call her like a ruka at one point. Yeah. And she's like, what does that mean? And they're like, oh, it's like a chick, like a pretty chick. And then they say it a few more times through the rest of the story. And it's like, we've kind of been taught this language over mm-hmm. the course of the film. There was one I could not figure out though. Oh, okay. Um, so he kept saying huacha 
And I couldn't figure out what that meant. I tried looking it up. I couldn't find anything. Yeah, I'm not sure on that one. Yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of the slangs were just like, well, there you are. There you go. Like, it, right. it, just sort of like interjections because they, they translated the critical words in the sentence so that anybody could understand it. Right, yeah. Um, but I think it was just, I, I really enjoyed the writing. But I do, I do like that there's a couple scenes where there's like three or four fully Spanish untranslated by subtitles yeah. lines of dialogue mm-hmm. and you know what they're saying back and forth yeah. to each other because you've been following the story closely enough. Yeah, I, uh, I I thought this movie was great and I can't believe that I've never seen it or even really even heard of it before. Uh, obviously, I've heard of the Zoot Suit Riots, right. but never... But I, I didn't know anything about the mm-hmm. history of this. And so, you know, I watched the documentary and like this was fairly true to the story itself. And right. so like... I love that it was actually educational in terms of the history mm-hmm. that, you know, why why did I never know about this? Why yeah. why is this not part of traditional history classes? Yeah. I know why, because it shows yeah. America exactly how racist it is. Right, yeah. Uh, I, lo- I loved how it was filmed. I love that sometimes you're just, uh, like, one of the scenes where, I think it's when the first time he meets Alice, uh it's just them at the like the visiting booth, right? But it's yeah. just a black void behind them, right? Yeah, like there's there's no there's no set. You don't need a set because yeah. this is the scene, and it's just them talking. But it never feels like the cost is forcing them to no, do it that no, way. No. It feels like it's a choice every time. It's not like yeah. in the aftermath when you have this astronaut just sitting in a chair in a garage. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it everything felt like it was very intentional yeah. to keep you focused on what you need to be looking at. Um, it's know, very consistent. Yeah, the the when they're all like you can see like I, I don't want to like like refer to it as the cell block tango, but when you see all of them in their cells doing different things, walking yeah. around, like I, I I think it it is the best way to film a play as a play. Yeah. Uh, well, especially in this play, because I feel like the way it was written, obviously the audience is included in the way this play is written because right. they are spoken to directly. Mm-hmm. And there are people playing an audience. There in are the people film. Yeah. walking through the audience for yeah. various parts of it. Right. And so like he they needed unless they were going to rewrite it in a different way that excluded the audience, which I think would have lost something, you yeah. needed a way to in- include them. And I think that they did that really well here. Yeah. I almost wonder if uh, stuff going on in the audience in the aisles was part of the original play. I, I, yeah. I, I would absolutely mm-hmm. think it is. Yeah, that would that would really be interesting to see, like people following the press guy up the up the aisle, like yeah. to the back of the theater, like he's trying to get away from them, and then suddenly there's a fight like back at the door to yeah. like the the lobby. Yeah, no, it, it's really great. And and when I announced this, uh, the first three months of our of our schedule for 2024, this was one that I think the most people jumped on that were like, I'm really excited to hear what you guys think about Zoot Suit. I think it's crazy. Like, I think it's crazy that I've never heard of this movie, that it's so good and entertaining. And I, it's just, it feels like it doesn't have the recognition that it deserves. Yeah. Or it, it, it needs a resurgence. Definitely. But yeah, big thumbs up here. Oh, yeah, yeah, thumbs and up. And it's definitely on the top of my list right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's yeah, showing sure. above... Uh, Splits and uh, <laughs> Island of Blood. So congratulations, Mr. Valdez. Our writer-director was Luis Valdez. He has been heralded as a founder of modern Chicano theater, having directed the stage version of this story and becoming the first Chicano director to have his work presented on Broadway on the way to this, his first feature film directing credit. He comes back in 87 directing Richie Valens' biopic La Bamba, 
Most recently, he's credited as the voice of Don Hidalgo in El Camino a Casa, the film within the film in Pixar's Coco. That's the oh. guy who poisons him in yeah, the yeah, movie. Yeah. Yes. He's the voice of that character. The music here came from Daniel Valdez, who plays Henry Reyna. He wrote the music for the film. Oh, really? And he is the younger brother of director Luis and the originator of the Henry Reyna role on stage. Yeah, he was really great. In a 2017 revival, he came back to play Henry's father, Enrique. So he comes back and he plays the dad in a 2017 stage revival. Oh, I was going to say, I really want to see this on stage. But I the, the thing is, you know, like I'm not... I I I go to a theater occasionally, and I, I guarantee you this will play again in our lifetime. I, but I've never seen it even advertised. Right? No, I haven't either. The cinematographer was David Myers. He previously lit THX 1138, and we've seen his work so far in Die Laughing and Roadie. Later, he lights Euphoria. The editor here was Jacqueline Combus. She previously cut the Gong Show movie and Falling in Love Again. Later this season, she cuts Personal Best and Cat People, and later a few Richard Benjamin films. Money Pit, My Stepmother's an Alien, Mermaids, Made in America, Milk Money, and several more. Edward James Olmos played El Pachuco. We've seen him so far in Virus, Day of Resurrection, and Wolfen. He's back later this season in Blade Runner, in a role he reprises for the recent sequel. But he's probably best known for his appearances in Stand and Deliver, 107 episodes of Miami Vice, Selena, or as Commander Adama in Battlestar Galactica. He also appears in Coco as Chicharron, which I think is a friend of, of the Gail Garcia Bernal character. Charles Aidman played George Shearer. He was based on civil liberties lawyer George Shibley. He's also a banquet speaker in inner space. Tyne Daly played Alice Bloomfield. She's based on a woman named Alice McGrath. And recently she has played Anne Hogue, director of the U.S. Department of Damage Control, a new department charged with rebuilding cities destroyed by the Avengers in the MCU. She was also Kate Moore, partner of Dirty Harry Callahan in The Enforcer, but she's likely best known as Lacey of Cagney and Lacey fame. John Anderson played Judge F.W. Charles. Lots of old Western TVs and films. He's California Charlie in Psycho. He's Judge Landis in Eight Men Out, but he'll always have a special place in mine and Richard's hearts for playing Harry Jackson, grandfather of Richard Dean Anderson's Angus MacGyver. That's right. Abel Franco played Enrique. That's the father of the brothers. He's a Mexican bandit in Blazing Saddles before this. Later, he's an interrogator in The Falcon and the Snowman and Papa Sanchez in Three Amigos. Mike Gomez played Joey slash Jose Torres. We saw him last as Hector in the 1980 Running Scared. Later he shows up in the Malagro Beanfield War. He's Daimon Lurin and Daimon Tar in Star Trek TNG. And he's Jorge Concepcion in X-Files episode Little Green Men. But the line I quote from him the most comes from The Big Lebowski. Leeds? Yeah, sure. I'll uh, just check with the boys down at the crime lab. They uh, got uh, four more detectives working on the case. They got us working in shifts. <laughs> Leads. <laughs> Alma Martinez played Lupe. This was her first film. She's Gloria in Born in East L.A., a juror in It Could Happen to You, and Old Goat Herder in Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice. Francis X. McCarthy played Press. We've seen him so far as Obispo, in Altered States, Toyota Man in Cutter's Way, and Bartender in Pennies from Heaven. Who's Toyota Man? Is that when he gets in a car accident <laughs> in the front yard? He's like crashed into his car because he was driving drunk. I don't remember. Must be that. Later, he's Lieutenant Fletcher in Death Spa and on Alex Mack as Griffin, an FDA agent bribed to cover up the side effects of GC-161. 
He's the president on Third Rock from the Sun and the principal in Summer School. More recently, he was Boots in Interstellar. Lupe Ontiveros played Dolores. We saw her last credited as Old Lady in Cheech and Chong's next movie, despite being in her 30s. Later, she's Rosalita in The Goonies. She's Cheech's mom in Born in East L.A. Madame Leona in Tales from the Crypt episode Seance. Beverly Franco in Chuck and Buck. But I feel like the top two roles I always think of are Consuela in Todd Salon's Storytelling but primarily as Yolanda Saldivar in Selena, who plays an important part in uh, the finale of the film uh, that I won't spoil. <laughs> I don't know if you knew this, but Selena died. <laughs> Ed Peck played Lieutenant Edwards. He was Westcott in Bullet and Jack Jingley in Last Unicorn later this season. Is that how you pronounce it in the movie? I haven't seen that movie. Jack Jingley? Uh, I don't remember even the character. Robert Phelan played District Attorney. He's Dr. Wynn in Halloween, Major Bell in Starman, and we saw him last in his first film role as Newberry in Three Days of the Condor. Tony Plana played Rudy. He's Feo in Born in East L.A. Jefe, the right-hand man to El Guapo in Three Amigos. Oh, okay. That's yeah, the, yeah. the little brother is, is, uh, is, is Jefe. Rose Portillo played Della. She's reprising the role after originating it in the stage production. And in the 2017 revival, she plays Henry's mother. So they came oh. back to play the parents. That's nice. Her first feature credit was as Spanish Girl in Exorcist to the Heretic. And we saw her last as a maid in Where the Buffalo Roam. I think that's the one that Bill Murray dragged into his hotel room and dressed <laughs> like a football player yeah. so yeah. they could reenact the Super Bowl that he wasn't going to. Marco Rodriguez played Smiley slash Ismael Torres. He originated the role of El Pachuco in the stage production, and we saw him last for his first feature film appearance in The Baltimore Bullet. He's also Sanchez in MacGyver episode Deep Cover, and he's Glyn Tell and Captain Paul Rice in a couple Star Trek TNGs. Kelly Ward played Tommy slash Thomas Roberts. He's Putsy in Greece. We saw him last as Private Johnson in The Big Red One. Most of his IMDb page, though, is for writing cartoons like Challenge of the Gobots, Ultraman, The Completely Mental Misadventures of Ed Grimley, Super Ted, Pirates of Darkwater, All Dogs Go to Heaven 2, The Feature, The New Woody Woodpecker in the 90s, and more recently, Captain Jake and the Neverland Pirates and Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Lots of both of those. Kim Miori played Manchaka. She was one of the assassins in DOA MacGyver when he was brainwashed into thinking he was a bad guy. And then she came back as a different character in MacGyver episode Second Chance, a fitting title. She also played Kayako's mother in The Grudge 2 and Lady Tanaka in the 1989 Punisher. Nancy Solis played Bonita. She's one of the ass-out so-fine dancers last season. Gino Silva played Galindo. Before this, he was Martinez in 1941, but I know him best as The Skull, an assassin from Scarface, who also plays an important spoilery part in the end of that film. Kurtwood Smith played Sergeant Smith. He's Red Foreman on that 70s show. He's a bad guy in RoboCop. <laughs> what's the guy's a name? bad guy? Yeah, what's his name? Oh, <laughs> uh, no. Uh, oh. oh. Okay, oh. I got it. <laughs> he's a bad guy. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You know what? Yeah, he's a bad guy. He plays the president of the Federation in Star Trek IV Undiscovered Country, and he also just showed up in the Firestarter reboot and that 70s show sequel series, that 90s show. What yeah, is it? Yeah, I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up. I got some letters in my head, but I'm not Clarence. Redeker? Boddicker? Boddicker. Clarence Boddicker. Dennis Stewart played Swabby. He's also in Greece with Kelly Ward playing Tommy. He plays a completely different character, Balmudo, in Greece 2, and he's Tom in MacGyver episode 3 for the road. Duke Stroud played Guard. We've seen him thus far as a Pinkerton in The Long Riders and a Counterman in Pennies for Heaven. He's also Airboss Johnson in Top Gun. I think his brother bought me pants, too. I think Duke, <laughs> Duke Stroud is Don Stroud's brother. 
Robert Beltran played Lowrider. This is his first film. He is the titular Raul in Paul Bartel's Eating Raul. He's also probably best known as Commander Chakate or Katane. IMDb has two names for the character. Chakote. Chakote. That's how it's pronounced. In 168 episodes of Star Trek Voyager. He's I also, also, oh, they also like him in Night of the Comet. I was just going to say, he's also Hector Gomez in Night of the Comet. Uh, I didn't see him in all through the movie until the very end when the crowd is giving their standing ovations. Oh, interesting. Like I was like, I was looking for him. And then when they're giving their ovations, oh, there he is. Yeah, because his parents are also here with him. Um, the next credit is Alma Beltran, who didn't have a lot of film credits I recognized, but based on having the same last name and being credited as Lowrider's mother, I'm guessing that she's actually his mother. Yeah. Uh, Diane Rodriguez played the court stenographer. She's a nun in Psycho 3. She's Ernestine in La Bamba from the same director. And she's Yolanda Salceda in Terminator 2, Judgment Day, which is the wife of Sarah Connor's buddy Enrique, who sets her up with a bunch of weapons. Those are all the credits I have for this one. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintage video pod. If you enjoy what we're doing, consider giving us a review on iTunes. I don't think it helps visibility, but it's good for morale. And if you really like the show, then maybe you should join our Patreon at patreon.com slash vintage video podcast for access to 50-ish 70s reviews and a hand in choosing our monthly 50th anniversary review. Patrons are currently choosing between Blazing Saddles, Busting, Deep Throat Part 2, Deranged, Thieves Like Us, Sugar Hill, and Zardoz for a 50th anniversary review next month. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Jaws of Satan, which IMDb describes like so. A preacher whose ancestors were cursed by druids battles Satan, who has taken the form of a huge snake. We leave you now <laughs> with a trailer for Jaws of Satan. And the angel seized the serpent, who is the devil Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. The ultimate horror has been locked away. An inhuman beast with a ravenous hunger for human flesh, hidden for a thousand years. Now he knows it's free. A monster lives. Run for your life. Hide if you can. There's no escape. King Cobra. So looking into the face of Satan, but it wasn't human. That wasn't Satan, you saw it. That was me. A cold-blooded fiend moving in the shadowy darkness of night, preying on the innocent, the unsuspecting. It's a life-and-death race against all that is evil. The terror begins. A living nightmare of a prophecy come true. They were forewarned. Beware. They who would disbelieve, believe. They who are chosen, make ready. Take one step beyond horror and over the edge to terror. King Cobra.